This morning we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 12. There's 17 verses, so why don't we just read the chapter? There's quite a bit here that uh, can be somewhat interesting. So let's read. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,000 260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of great eagle were given to a woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Father, we open your word, careful to give careful attention to what you have to say to us through this passage. Open our eyes that we might see what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in fourth grade, my family moved from Kearney, New Jersey to one of the beach areas in New Jersey called Long Branch. And they did that in the middle of the semester, so I was a new kid in the class that had already been there for several months. 
And there was a young man sitting behind me, he was a rather large man, he was the bully of the class, and he began to jab me in the back whenever the teacher had his back turned to the class and occasionally would punch me. That continued also in the recess time. And so after several weeks of that, I um, finally had enough. And uh, when he began to do that at recess, I leaned back and gave him two good solid shots right in the face. And then he proceeded to beat the living daylights out of me. <laughs> now, I don't recommend, I'm not recommending that your children do that because this was in 1950 when there was a little bit more sanity in the school system. They'd probably be expelled if they did that today. But there comes a time when somebody pushes you and pushes you and aggravates you uh, like John was that I said, enough is enough, and I had to put a stop to it. And you know what? After that time, he never touched me again because he knew if he did, I would get him. In our chapter, and as a matter of fact, towards the end of the year, we kind of became friends. He respected me. In our passage, that's beginning to happen to our enemy, the devil. And we see that beginning to move in that direction. It's almost like, okay, you've had your run. But now, we're going to deal with you. Chapter 12 is a pause in the action, once again, as I explained two weeks ago. Seventh angel has sounded in chapter 11. The seven bowls of wrath come out as a a result of that, but there's a couple of chapters in the middle where John is given extra information concerning these last seven years of the tribulation. And that's what chapter 12 is. In this chapter, we'll discover how the devil works, and much more important, how we can overcome his work that he longs to do in me, in you, and this church. So, there's three kind of keys, three issues that have to be kind of worked through in this passage, so we'll take them one at a time. And the first one is, We must understand the three personages in this vision. There's three personages and their actions. One is the woman clothed with sun. The second is the great red dragon. The third is the male child. And even uh, there's one extra, it's called the serpent, but we'll explain that in just a minute. So you got the, the woman, the male child, the devil, and he's also called the serpent. Who are these people? What does this have to do with anything? Good question. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1, we'll just kind of march right down this chapter. There's a woman clothed with sun with the moon under her feet, her head crowned of 12 stars. I think it's fairly easy to determine this woman represents Israel. Israel. This is the nation Israel. Now, you have to see in this chapter, it's not talking about the whole history of Israel but it's talking about Israel as it is involved bringing forth the Messiah. So so it's a picture of Israel, but it's dealing specifically on how Israel brings forth the Messiah and the results thereof. So you have the woman. She with her child. She's getting ready to give birth to this male child, and notice in verse 5, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, Who is that? Well, it's the Messiah. It's Jesus. 
And after he was born, he was caught up to God in his throne. Who is this red dragon who's waiting to kill the child when it's born? Well, that's Satan. If you look at verse 9, and the great red dragon was thrown down, the serpent of all, who's called the devil and Satan. So the red dragon is Satan. Now notice, he's also called a serpent. And I looked at that and I thought, well, wait a minute. Is he a dragon or is he a serpent? The reason he says serpent in verse 9 and also it appears in verse 14 and verse 15, it's identifying that this thing, this great red dragon, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent who deceived Eve. He was a deceiver and a liar from the very beginning. And that's his nature. So there's identification with this red dragon. It's the same character that appears in Genesis chapter 3. Now, notice in verse 4, this red dragon, it says, he swept away the stars, a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. Notice that there was a war in heaven, and it says the great dragon was thrown down, who is the devil, who is called Satan, and who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, when it says he swept away a third of the stars, I don't think he's talking about specifically literal stars. I think he's talking about angels. I think that Satan deceived. In his fall, he deceived one-third of the angels who came with him, and they represent what we would call demons, fallen angels. So we have these characters here. Okay, so we've identified the three, three main characters. Now notice in verse 5 and 6, it says that he was going to kill the child, getting ready to kill the child when he was born, but he wasn't able. Now, where was that? Chapter 5, verse 5, is talking about the birth of Jesus. And Satan was involved in stirring up Herod to try and kill the child when he was born. Do you remember that? That's exactly what happened. But he failed. He also failed in the temptation. He also failed when Christ was crucified because he thought he got him. I killed the Messiah. But God turned it around and God raised him from the dead and took him to heaven. That's what verse 5 is about. Now notice verse 6. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Who's the woman? Israel. Where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Okay, what are we talking about? Verse 5, there's a gigantic gap between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 is talking about the first coming of Christ. Verse 6 is talking about the second coming of Christ. We have that three and a half year period. Remember, Daniel talked about that? How the Antichrist comes to Israel, makes a a covenant for seven years, and in half of that time, in three and a half years, he breaks the covenant and begins to persecute the Jews. Why does he persecute the Jews? The Bible tells us that he, after allowing the Jews to build their temple, he puts an image of himself into the temple, and he tells the Jewish people to worship him. And when they see that, they recognize the the prophecy of Daniel, and they flee from him. And that's what we see here, beginning in verse 13. It says, And when the dragon 
saw that he was thrown down to earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child and they flee into the wilderness. Now, here's an interesting question. What are the two wings of the eagle? That's an unknown quality. I I haven't got a clue what it is. But I think what it's trying to say to us, as God has throughout the ages rescued Israel, when it seemed like Israel was done for, God always came through and rescued Israel. He did, he's done it throughout history. He will do it in those last three and a half years. How about the flood? Now that's a water poured, this is verse 15, water poured like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood, but the earth helped the woman. The earth opened up the, his mouth and swallowed the flood. I don't have a clue what that is. There, there's all sorts of things that go on I've read this in commentators, different things. But I kind of like this one. The goal of Satan has always been to dilute the Jewish people by having them marry Gentile people so that at the end times, there would be no Jews. But stubbornly, for some reason, the Jews have maintained their integrity as Jewish people throughout the ages, throughout the ages. And now we have the nation of Israel back in the land just prior to the second coming of Christ. Now, did you notice in verse 17, after the Jews are protected by God, what what does the devil do? He goes after the rest of her children, but they're not Jewish. Notice what it says. Not primarily Jewish, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who's that speaking about? He's speaking about people who were left here after the rapture came to Christ, and they suffer tremendously during that last three and a half years. That's essentially uh, what the vision is about. It's looking at the total picture of Israel bringing forth a Messiah, both the first coming and the second coming, the results thereof, and what Satan was trying to do from the very beginning. Okay, so we must understand the three personages That gives you a rough outline of what's going on here. Second thing, we must understand the work of the devil. We must understand the work of the devil. Three things here that we see in this chapter. First, the work of the devil is to destroy God's plan of salvation. To destroy God's plan of salvation. He was waiting to destroy Jesus at his birth, He tried to trip him up with a temptation in the wilderness. He thought he had him when he had him crucified, when he stirred up Herod and the Jewish leaders to crucify him, but it it backfired on him, and God used the death of Christ to bring billions of people to him, and then he was taken up into heaven. But he's always trying to destroy God's plan of salvation. And he'll do the same, he'll try to do the same in our lives. He'll do everything to try and keep our friends, trying to keep us from coming to Christ. He'll take old friends to draw us back. He'll take troubles that we've found ourselves in that come back in us. He'll take hypocritical Christians. He'll take all sorts of difficulties to keep us from opening our lives to Jesus. Now, when we come to Christ, 
He'll then, his second plan, is to make our lives unfruitful and frustrating. If you haven't read the book by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters, I write that down. If you haven't read that book, if you haven't read it in a couple of years, you need to go home and read it. Screwtape Letters details in a very creative way how C.S. Lewis points out what the devil's plan is for you once you are a Christian. He tries to keep you from coming to Christ, and then he'll use almost anything. Hypocritical Christians, pastors saying things, churches, almost anything to drive you out of the church and to make your life unfruitful and frustrating. Jesus nailed it when he said what? The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do in your life. Jesus but also said, but I came that they might have life and life more abundantly. Work of the devil, he wants to destroy God's plan of salvation. Secondly, he wants to wage war against the forces of good. We see that in the latter half of chapter 12. Now you have to understand that the devil is not some character in red pajamas whispering in your ear as he sits on your left shoulder. That's not who he is. That's what the world would like us to believe, but that's not who he is. Matter of fact, just think about this. Prior to the fall of man, he rebelled against God, and what did he do? He is so good that he deceived one-third of the angels who were living in the very presence of God. Do you understand what he is and the power that he has? He is a being of incredible power. As a matter of fact, it says that we are, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that he is powers. We have world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In Daniel chapter 10, just last week, do you remember what Pastor Rob was talking about? This gigantic battle that's going on against the prince of Persia and an angel, and Michael had to come and rescue him because the one angel was not able to come against that being. He wars against the very forces of that which is good. When things suddenly go dark in your life, do you think it's just your carnal nature? Really? It could be. But oftentimes there's more at work than that. When somebody that you've been witnessing to, somebody you've been trying to draw, suddenly turns cold and wants nothing to do with you, wants nothing to do with your Bible studies, wants nothing to do with you bringing them to church, do you think that's just happenstance? Do you think they're just sick or don't have the time or working extra? No, there's something bigger going on. Spiritual battles. It says in... 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We can't fight this being with our flesh because it's a spiritual battle going on. Perfect illustration of the darkness of this creature and those that follow him is what we see going on in Syria and Iraq this week. The terrible things that are going on with ISIS and the Islamic jihadists and what they're doing there. 
That is a direct expression coming from the very heart of the devil. And he's deceived millions. He deceived the angels, and he's out to deceive you and get to you. So he wages war against the plan of salvation. He wages war against the forces of good. Thirdly, he accuses and persecutes believers. Notice verse 10. For he is an accuser of our brethren and has been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night. Now, he accuses us, and this is going on right now. Right now, because what we read in chapter 12 has not taken place yet. Has not taken place yet. So you're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The devil gets to play, has a place in heaven? Well, if you read Job, we saw that, didn't we? Where he was accusing, oh, well, you know, if you just, you know, just pull away your protection on his flesh, he'll curse you. See, that's what he does. Now, does God believe him? No, matter of fact, he uses him for his own purposes. But here's the question. He's an accuser. Not only does he accuse us to God about us, but he accuses you. He accuses me. And what does he say? Oh, you'll never make it. You're not a good Christian. What? You did that again? God will never forgive you. Why don't you just go back to the way you were before? Why don't you just give up? Go ahead. Do you think God loves you? You terrible sinner. God can't forgive what you did. You, matter of fact, I'm going to keep bringing it up to you. Again and again and again to show you what a loser and a failure you are. That's his spirit. That's what he says to God and that's what he oftentimes, many times, says to us. The devil tries to discourage us and keep us away from the grace of God and for his forgiveness. Okay. Pretty dark picture. Pretty dark picture. He's out to destroy God's salvation. He wars against all the forces that are good. And then he accuses and persecutes and tempts believers. Okay. The last key in this, uh, this passage is we must understand our responsibilities in this. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you a question. How can we overcome such a force as powerful and as dark as he is? How can we overcome him? If he deceived the angels, if he's so powerful... How do we do it? We can't. We can't. As I said, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, battle is not flesh and blood. So in our own strength, we can't win against him. But we can overcome him. But there's something that we must do. We must connect with God. And through God and our responsibility, there's listed here in in verse 11, three things that are our responsibility that we connect with God, and through God we can overcome him. Now, notice verse 10. I was looking at this the other day, and I thought, my heavens, 
Verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. How do we connect with the power, the kingdom, the authority of Christ? How do we do that? It's given in verse 11. Three things that are our responsibility. They're part and parcel of God's plan to help us overcome this dark enemy of our soul. Let's take a look at them. First, he says, the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. What is, how does that work? Well, salvation begins with the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is the result of his death on the cross. He paid the penalties for our sins. When we believe that, when we put our trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, we are freed. We're made friends of God. We have peace with God. We're delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. So salvation begins with the blood of the lamb. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Why? Because we're sinners. (laughs) Now, in God's eyes, positionally, you're perfect. Because of the blood of the Lamb, God has forgiven you past, present, or future. But you're in a process of what? Sanctification. Sanctification is a process where you grow, where you put aside those things that were in your past. Now, Will you ever win the process of sanctification in your body? Mm, Probably not. Most likely not. For sure not. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 7, what does he say? Sin dwells in in our flesh. So as long as you're in your body, you're going to have this battle. So what has the blood of the Lamb got to do with it? Now, if you read 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it tells us that we must walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another, fellowship with Christians and fellowship with him. What is walking in the light? And I've talked about this many. Walking in the light is not sinless perfection. Walking in the light is recognizing, acknowledging your failures, acknowledging your sins, and asking in the blood of Christ to cleanse you. Well, how many times do I have to do that? Till you're dead. (laughs) It's part of life. That's called walking in the light. Not maintaining some sort of secret little life on the side, but acknowledging fully your own lostness, your own sinfulness, and asking God to forgive you. Now, he makes this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise of God. Well, how many times do I have to confess it? Keep on, keep on. Because his word says he will do it. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, how long, Pastor Neil? I've been struggling with this problem. Maybe it's something I use in my mouth. Maybe it's a thought life. Maybe it's something else. How long? You just keep on. Because that's called walking in the light. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's the first, blood of Christ. 
When you're in that place, you're working against the enemy of your soul. Walking in the light. Secondly, the word of their testimony. It says in the Bible, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now, an integral part of salvation is what? Believing in your heart. But also what? Giving your testimony. Now, that testimony is also verbal, but it's also actions. Why do I say that? Because if you really believe it in your heart, what will happen? It will show itself, right? With your words and your actions. We defeat the devil by living a life and speaking our testimony. It's like light coming into darkness. It's called planting the flag of Christian faith wherever you go. At home, at work, at school, wherever you are. You give them. Now, we're not talking about shoving religion down people's throat. We're talking about being a Christian and testifying to that fact and living in a way that says you're a Christian. And when you do that, you push back the darkness. I've given this illustration several times, but it really is classic. Years ago, when my late wife, Cindy, was alive, we were just married and we were living in a condo off of Los Alisos. And there was a fellow downstairs. We had the upstairs condo. There was a fellow downstairs who was kind of a druggie and he had a lot of friends. And sometimes when I was out of business, she would have to come home alone. Our kids weren't born yet. And she would have to walk past all these druggie friends hanging down by the bottom of our steps of our condo. She was frightened. Now, they never did anything, but it was troubling. She was a young bride. We were just married. So I decided, well, maybe I could just take my hose and hose them down. And then I thought, no, that's not going to work. So then I remembered that our battle is not flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. So you know what I started doing? One day I took my Bible and I just went down the steps and I began to share Christ. I began to talk about my testimony and the truth of God's word. I did that once or twice and then suddenly they stopped hanging around the bottom of my steps. Now, I had an ulterior motive, okay? I did have an ulterior motive. I just didn't want them to bother my wife anymore. But guess what? I learned the truth. When you speak the word of God, you push back the darkness. Push it back by the way you act and the way you speak the word of your testimony. Thirdly, not loving our lives. Jesus says, if anyone will be my disciple, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. He also says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. So the very life you long to have, the good life that, that Jesus promised, he promised, life and life more abundantly. If, you seek, if you're seeking to have that, but you're trying to keep it all to yourself, you're going in the wrong direction. But if you lose your life for his sake, He says, you'll find that life. Selfishness, self-centeredness, thinking only about yourself, is falling directly into the path of the enemy who wants to destroy you, kill you. How do we overcome the devil? We can't in ourselves, but we connect with God through the blood of the Lamb through the word of our testimony, 
and living our lives for Christ and not our selfish needs. That's how we do it. Okay. Silly story. A woman accompanied her husband to a doctor's office for a checkup. Afterwards, the doctor took the wife aside and said, unless you do the following things, your husband is going to die. She said, what's that? Here's what you need to do. Every morning, make sure he gets a good, healthy breakfast. Have him come home for lunch each day so you can feed him a well-balanced meal. Make sure you feed him a good, hot dinner every night and don't overburden him with any household chores. Keep the house spotless and clean so he doesn't get exposed to any unnecessary germs. On the way home, the husband asked, what did the doctor say? She said, you're going to die. You're going to die. Let's get back to the passage now. How do we overcome? And what is he out to do? He's out to kill you. He's out to frustrate your Christian life. He's out to make life miserable for you. You can overcome him. You can stand against him. If you don't, he wants to kill you. Ephesians 4.27 says, Do not give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity could actually be translated literally. Do not give the devil a place. Now, he's not talking about demon possession of Christians. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if there's something in your life that you've kind of said, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. Say there's something you're doing. You know it's wrong, but uh, that's just the way I am. And you make it part of your life. And you don't walk in the light. Remember what we were talking about, First John? You're not fighting against it. You're not asking for forgiveness. You're not standing against it. You're not walking in the light. And you've just allowed it to be in your life. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't make a place for the devil. Why is that? Because the author of that thing is the same being that's doing what's being done in Syria and Iraq this very day. He's the same character, and he wants part of your life. Do you want him in your life? Do you see what he's doing? That is the same being, and he wants a part of your life. He wants a part of your life. And he will seek to kill steal and destroy everything that's good and right in your life. Oh, Neil, that's, that's a hard word. Yes, it is. But we can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and loving not our life, even unto death. Pray with me, please. Father, we so thank you for Jesus who delivers for us from this dark enemy who's out for our souls. I pray that we might hear the word of God, that we might avail ourselves of that which you have given to us through your dear Son, through the power that comes in his name, through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that we might appropriate that which you've given us to stand against the enemy of our soul, 
the one who would steal, kill, and destroy, the one who would keep us from the abundant life that you offer us through your Son. In his name we pray, amen.